1: Would you bring your attention to the reading in God's Word? In 2 Samuel 12. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord. Behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbors. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And 2 Samuel 18. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for, the Lord, for my Lord the King. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, "Is it well with the young man Absalom?" And the Cushite answered, "May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for the evil be like that young man." And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And he went and, and as he went, he said, "O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom!" Would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. And Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes.
0: Uh, If you've been with us this semester on RUF, we have been looking at the life of David. And we're trying to get a sense of what is ordinary spirituality. And uh, tonight, I want to talk about something that uh, is near and dear to the heart of everybody here, which is the nature of freedom. What does it mean to be free? And uh, to begin this way, I want to tell you a story that I recently heard about uh, a young couple, uh, a guy named Julian Buckwald—not to be confused with Buck Wild—but uh, Julian Buckwald is 22 years old. He Uh, lives in Australia, and he was dating a girl named Carolyn, who was 17 years old, and they met at a church youth group thing committed to Christ. They're they're part of the youth group. They met with their pastor to talk about getting married one day. Julian wanted to get married uh, sooner than Carolyn did, so they had a little bit of relational conflict, but they pushed through, they stayed together, and they eventually, one one afternoon, decided to go, hey bus wanted to go out on a hike together and have lunch. So he picks, Julian picks up Carolyn in his car. Uh, They drive out to this uh, kind of park area where they're going to go on a hike and then pack a picnic lunch and uh, along the road, on the way there Julian drives by this like dead animal in the road and he stops the car and he wants to get out and check it out which apparently was a normal thing for him to do so he gets out of the car goes and kind of stoops down and he's checking out this animal and suddenly he hears footsteps run up behind him His the back of his head is bang with some hard object and he goes unconscious. Now this all took place uh, around the corner from where the car was parked. Carolyn, who's still in the car, didn't see any of this. She happens to look up in her rear view mirror and sees somebody dressed in black with a black mask running up to the car. Before she can lock the doors, he opens up the door, pulls her out, ties her up, blindfolds her, gags her, puts her in the back seat of the car gets in the driver's seat, and drives for six hours. They come up to a remote forest area. Uh, The abductor pulls her out of the backseat of the car, brings her into the forest, puts her on the ground. She's still hogtied. She's still blindfolded. She suddenly starts hearing um, the sound of digging, like someone's digging a grave right next to her. The abductor then... Cuts off her clothes, so she's naked, and now at this point she's praying for her life, and suddenly the abductor stops, leaves, runs away, and she's just basically left there abandoned, naked, and in the forest a few moments later actually some time passes and she begins to hear this the voice the weak voice of julian not too far away from her and he calls out to her and, and he is naked as well and he's tied up to a tree and he calls out to her she hears him he is somehow able to uh, get out of his out of his ropes he runs over her unties her and now they're freaking out because like at any point the abductor could come back and they don't know what to do so they just grab whatever they could which was near them which happened to be a suit uh not a suitcase a um sleeping bag uh some jars of peanut butter and they just run into the forest they're both naked and they have nothing but those items. they're running into the forest Now, their family back home uh, is, of course, beginning to get worried. They notify the police. Police do a search, but this is in an area six hours south of where these people were, so the police had no chance of finding them. And they're running through the forest, surviving off of peanut butter for seven days. They eventually find uh, a road, and somebody who's driving by happens to see them, picks them up, police are alerted, families are relieved, they get brought back home, and the police start to ask them questions to begin to figure out what happened so we can get some clues and figure out who this abductor was, perhaps. And as they're talking with the police, it didn't take them too long to realize that something was a little weird with this story, because there was no wound on the back of Julian's head. And after a number of hours of interrogation, he eventually comes clean and admits that he, in fact, was the abductor. He had stopped the car. He had ran around the corner. He had dressed in black. He had run up to the car. He had pulled his girlfriend out. He had tied her up. He had driven six hours. He had put her in the woods. He had ripped off her clothes. He had taken his own clothes off. He had tied himself up to a tree and then called out to her. The obvious question, why? (laughs) Why? Why would you abduct yourself? And here was his answer to the police. He wanted to have sex with her. And in his mind, he thought, if I can get her alone in a sleeping bag without clothes on, we'll be able to have sex with each other. And so on on night two of their week in the woods... He suggested that maybe they could have sex to keep warm. And she resisted and said no. On night four of the week, he said, I think we're going to die out here anyway. So let's just get married in the eyes of God and have sex with each other. And she said no. And when he eventually became aware of the fact that she is going to keep saying no, he knew where the road was all along. And he brought her to the road. And a person eventually saw them and picked them up. I mean, that is the craziest story I've ever heard in my life. You can look it up online. It's absolutely true. Here's my point in telling this. Here's this guy named Julian Buckwald that tried to take something that wasn't his... And it caused incredible damage. He was arrested. He was sent to prison for five years. The relationship was obviously over. She obviously was traumatized and needed serious help afterward. Shock waves went through their church. Uh, the families were distraught. So much turmoil, so much damage. And my point is, sin has real consequences. And the reason I tell you that story is to set up this next phase in David's life. Because David, if you were, if you were with us um, a couple of weeks ago, he tried. He did take something that didn't belong to him, and it caused incredible damage. If you remember, he um, went after a woman that was not his wife. She was married to somebody else. He impregnated her. He murdered her husband to cover it up. Then he married her, and it looked like he got away with it. But the Lord confronted him. He repented of his sin, asked the Lord for mercy, And the Lord astoundingly gave it. If you were with us last week, the Lord looks at him in the light of this atrocious, monstrous thing that David does. The Lord looks at him and says, I have taken away your sin. You shall not die. But here's the thing. There is a huge distinction that I want to try to make with you tonight. And the distinction is this. We tend to think that the guilt of our failures, the guilt of our sin, the guilt of our mistakes, and the consequences of our mistakes are the same. And I want to try to show you they are not the same. We do something stupid, we blow it, we screw up, we we, uh, do something we know that we shouldn't, and then bad things begin to happen in our life, and we think those bad things, the consequences, are the guilt of our sin, and they're not. They're two different things. The Lord looks at David and says, Your guilt is atoned for. I've taken your sin and thrown it as far as the east is from the west. Because of the cross, there is no condemnation for those that are in Jesus. And yet, at the same time, there are very real consequences for our actions. Because we live in a world that is designed by a righteous God, and that means when you do things, other things happen. So here's what I want to show you. Look at chapter 12 on your little handout there. God, through the, through the prophet Nathan, comes to David and says, Yes, your sin deserves death, but you are not going to die, but here are the consequences for what you have done. Look at verse 10. Since you used the sword to get rid of Bathsheba's husband, the sword will never depart from your house. This means your family is going to be constantly dealing with warfare, strife, conflict, violence. This is what's happened in your family. Look at verse 11. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, meaning there will be rebellion in your own family. Someone in your family will revolt against you. Look at the rest of verse 11. Just as you took another man's wife in secret, someone is going to take your wives in public. That seems obvious. Look at verse 14. The child that you have had with Bathsheba will die. God is saying, look, these are the consequences for your sin. And for the next five or six chapters in 2 Samuel, this is why I'm not going to go through all these chapters, but you see all of these consequences unfold that we just read. It's like David injected poison into his family and you just begin to see it spread. So let me just tell you the quick story of what happens over the next couple of chapters. Here's what happens. Uh, The child that David has with Bathsheba does in fact die. One of David's sons, who's named Absalom, kills his half-brother, And because he kills his half-brother, David banishes from Jerusalem. So David is banished from the city. After three years, Absalom returns to Jerusalem. But David is so bitter and angry at him because of what he has done, he quarantines him and wants nothing to do with his son. And Absalom begins to stew, and he's broken, and he's angry because of the way that his dad, David, is treating him. So he begins to plan for an uprising. And over four years, he begins to garner favor with everybody in the city, and he mounts a revolt against King David, kicks him off the throne, David flees, for his life into the wilderness Absalom sets up shop as the new king and then rapes all of David's wives that is the damage and the destruction that gets brought into David's family as a result of his sin now what's the point of all of this is is God just up there waiting for us to screw up What's what's the point here's the lesson I really have only one point for you tonight and it's this When you break God's law, the law of God breaks you. That's the lesson. When you break the law of God, the law of God breaks you. Is God up there just waiting for you to screw up, and as soon as you screw up, he zaps you? No. Jesus ready stands to save you. He is good and kind and merciful. And out of his kindness, he gives you his law as a blueprint for reality and says, Look, I'm much wiser than you. I created this world. I know how this world functions. If you want life to go well for you, obey what I have told you to do. Because if you go against the law, it's not like you're just breaking arbitrary rules. You're breaking yourself, you're going against your own design. Think about it like this. We've discussed this before. Maybe I've used this analogy with you before. But let's say that you get a new car and you begin to read the little book that comes in the little uh, glove box. And it's it's the owner's manual. This is a book that was written by the people that designed the car. And it tells you how to have the car function to the best of its ability. It, teach you how to, it shows you how to do maintenance to it. And you get to the part in the book where it says... Uh, that you are only to put gasoline in the gas tank. And if you read that and you go, only gasoline? That is so restrictive. This is my car. I want to do with my car what I think I should do with it. I have the freedom to do whatever I want with my car. I don't want to put just gasoline in it. I also want to put in pancake syrup. And you are free to do that. And the moment that you put in pancake syrup, you introduce incredible damage to the design of the car. It does not thrive, it does not flourish in the way that it was designed to flourish. My point is, God is your designer. And he looks at you and says, look, I have made a blueprint of reality and the blueprint for your life and the way for you to function the best in this life is to follow me, is to trust me, is to do what I've said. And when you go against that design, it's not just breaking stupid rules that I've just made up for fun. You're you're pouring pancake syrup into the gas tank of your life. You're causing damage. When you break God's law, the law of God actually breaks you. The law of God is good. This is why I included that psalm in the reading that we read. David writes a psalm about the law of God, and here's how he describes it. He looks at it and says, The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now look, let's pause for a second because I am not a complete idiot. I realize that saying this kind of stuff to Westerners, you know, Americans, especially millennials, like you deeply hate what I'm talking about right now. Like there's something inside of you that is allergic to this because the world that we live in tells you, you are absolutely free to do whatever you want. And so any, anybody, much less a Christian pastor standing up and saying, no, the way to the good life is for you to submit to the laws of God that sounds unbelievably restrictive that seems oppressive that seems like that is not what true freedom really is because we, we our culture says you are so free to define life for however you want to define it i mean think about this the way that we talk about truth in our culture we don't really speak about absolute truth anymore when we talk about things that are true we we talk we add this little two words to the end of the sentence we say, well, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. Something's not true anymore. It's true whether or not I choose to believe it. I get to decide what is true. You might think that the capital of Tennessee is Nashville. That might not be true for me. I get to decide what is true. Uh, think about sexuality. We we think in this culture we get to have sex and do whatever we want sexually uh, with whoever we want to do it with. And, Whatever capacity we want to do it, and any restrictions to that feels oppressive. Really, in our day and age, even even biology doesn't get to limit us. Uh, That we have said, I have the right to determine my own gender. If I'm born a certain way, I get to define what is actually true. Now, I'm not speaking to those particular issues. I'm just making the point that we live in a culture that says, I am so free, I get to determine what is reality. And freedom, therefore, is me having the freedom to do whatever I want to do without, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, then that is the ultimate good. That is the ultimate value, right? So it makes sense that um, somebody up here saying submitting your life to the law of God is the way to flourishing, that feels so allergic to us. But I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to think about what is freedom? We would say freedom is the absence of all restrictions. No constraints. I'm absolutely free to do whatever I want to do. But I want you to think about that for just a second. Imagine a man who is in his 60s and uh, he loves eating whatever he wants to eat. And at the same time, he loves spending time with his grandkids. And he goes to the doctor and the doctor looks at him and says, look, you are in bad shape health wise. If you do not change your eating habits, you are going to die and you will not be able to spend time with your grandkids so here's this person who has two absolute wants that are now in conflict our culture says he's free to do whatever he wants to do but what do you do when both of your wants are in conflict if he does not change his eating habits he loses the freedom of seeing his kids if he wants to see his kids um, and he does not restrict his eating habits then he can't see his kids if he does restrict his eating habits, he does get to see his kids. So the point is, he has to lose one of his freedoms in order to give way to a deeper freedom. My point is this. True freedom is not the absence of all restrictions. True freedom is the presence of the right restrictions. True freedom is where you strategically say, I will lose some of my freedoms so that I will gain deeper richer real freedoms think of it like this let's say you have a you, you have a fish in a uh, a goldfish in a bowl and the and the fish is swimming around in the water and it's thinking to himself i feel so restricted in this bowl i would be so much more free if i could just get out and get on the land be able to do whatever i want so the fish jumps out lands on the ground and he's absolutely free and now he's dead Was the bowl restricting to him? Yes. But was that bowl life-giving to him? Yes. My point is there are environments in which you were designed to flourish. And the the way that you were designed to flourish is to submit your life and your will to the law of God. Now listen. I've been really philosophical and abstract up to this point. Let let me get really practical. Here's what this looks like practically. Practically. God's law tells us <clears throat> God commands us to forgive. To forgive. When we withhold forgiveness and instead nurse a grudge, we're going against the grain of our design and we introduce damage into ourselves. Because now we become cynical, jaded, bitter people. The relationship that we had is now damaged beyond repair because we've refusing we've refused we've refused to forgive. Here's another example. Uh, God commands us to rest. This is like the best command in the Bible. God says, take one day off and do nothing. It's commanded by God. It's like an amazing commandment. But when you say, no, I'm going to work and work and work and use that day to get ahead and always play catch up. When you never stop working, you become a stressed out workaholic and you're moving at a frenetic pace and your blood pressure is getting higher. You introduce ulcers and stress into your life. You are going against the grain of your design. Here's another example. God commands you to confess your failures to your friends, to trusted friends. And when you refuse to confess what you've done wrong, you're going against the grain of your design because what you're doing is now you're driving a wedge deeper and deeper between your private life and your public life, and you're becoming two different people. You're living a divided life and becoming not a whole person. You're introducing damage. God commands you to tell the truth, when you tell lies, when you shave the truth, when you tell white lies, when you hide things, you do damage. You, uh, you rob people of information. You destroy relationships. You damage your integrity. People don't trust you anymore. Here's my point. When you break the law of God, you break yourself. You pour pancake syrup into the gas tank of your life. It's you jumping out of the fishbowl. Now, I want to make something really clear as well. Your sin does not affect God's love for you. God loves you entirely, nothing because of something in you. He loves you entirely because of something in Him. His love for you is 100% unconditional. Your sin does not affect His love for you, but here is the reality your sin does affect your experience of His love for you. That's a big distinction. A a number of years ago, I sat down with a student who wanted to talk to me because he was—he had grown cold towards God. God just wasn't as real to him anymore. He was just kind of spiritually bored, in a funk. And I started asking him questions about his life, like, "Tell me what your life is like." And he, you know, I basically uh, grew to understand in this conversation—he really spends zero time with God personally. He's not involved in a church. He'd been having sex with his girlfriend, and he was getting drunk like four nights a week. And I was like, oh, like this is not that complicated. And so I said, okay, think about your relationship with God like it's a marriage. Let's just say uh, you have a married friend that comes to you and sits down and says, hey, man, I need to talk. Uh, My marriage is, I've really just grown cold towards my wife. Things just aren't as exciting as they used to be. And then you start asking your friend questions and your friend says, oh, yeah, well, I haven't really talked to her in, like, months. And I haven't really spent any time with her. Oh, and I'm having sex with my secretary. You would say, huh, I wonder if those behaviors are affecting the way that you're experiencing your marriage. I wonder if your behaviors are impacting how you're experiencing your wife. And look, my, my point to him and my point to y'all is, is basically this. Your sin is not neutral. When when you willfully disobey and rebel against God, your heart becomes hardened towards him. You grow numb and cold towards him. And so he might absolutely love you in all the ways that we always talk about in RUF, grace, 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 and yet it just bounces off of you because your heart is so numb and cold. And if that's where you are tonight, spiritually bored, in a funk, don't really care about what we're talking about, but yet kind of want to care about what we're talking about, here would be my suggestion for you to maybe take a personal inventory and figure out, are there areas in my life where I am willfully disobeying God and I'm going against the grain of what I know He wants me to do but I just don't care. I want to do what I want to do. Do you have areas in your life where that is the case? That might be the reason why. I don't know. But just a hypothesis, it might be the reason why you're spiritually bored and numb and don't care. Because if we're honest, let's, let, let's, let's be honest while we're being honest. Deep down, the reason why I think we prize freedom and autonomy so much is because we just want to be God. We want to be the king. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want anybody to tell us otherwise. I mean, we are Absalom in the story, right? We are the people that have revolted against the king. We do not want to submit to him. We've thrown him off the throne and we've set up shop so that we can call the shots of our life. That is what we want. We do not want a king to rule over us. And you know this is true because when our king came to us in the person of Jesus, what did we do? We killed him. We do not want a king. We want to be the king. In fact, maybe one of the best shorthand definitions of sin would just basically be this. Sin is mankind substituting himself for God. I want to be the king. I want to call the shots. I want to be in control. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. So here's the thing. How does the story end? David's out in the wilderness. His son is set up shop as the, as the new king. And David begins to form an army to go and take his throne back. And he tells his soldiers, look, there's one thing. I do not want you to kill my son Absalom. I want you to protect him at all costs. When we go in there, save his life. And the war breaks out. And tragically, Absalom's life is lost in the battle. And the news gets reported back to David that his son has been killed in battle. And look at his response in chapter 18, verse 33. It says, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I think this is the moment in David's life where he most clearly exhibits the fact that he has that he is a man after God's own heart. He is embodying the very heart of God because the heart of God says the same thing. The heart of God looks at his rebellious children and says, I would rather die than them. And it's so true that he actually sent his son centuries later to do that very thing. This is why Jesus is on a cross. He is taking our place, bearing the punishment that you and I deserve so that he could have us God says I would rather die and get my rebellious children back than to lose them if sin is man substituting himself for God salvation is God substituting himself for man And when you see the cross, when you see that sort of sacrificial, unconditional love for rebellious people like you and me, people that have just thrown our middle finger up at God and he lays down his life for people like us, that's what melts your heart. That's what moves you to say, okay, I think I can actually trust you. I think that you're actually committed to my welfare. You want what's best for me. And so you can begin to say something like this. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. Here's what this would look like practically in your life, and I'll end with this. You can begin to say, God, I do not know why you want me to share my resources with the poor. I don't know why. I don't want to do that. But you have said that for me to share my resources with the poor is the way for me to best honor you and for the way for me to flourish in this life. And so out of love for you, I will do it. I will obey you because I trust the heart of the lawgiver. Or it could look like like you saying this, uh, God, I know you tell me to forgive my roommate. And if I'm honest, I do not want to forgive my roommate. I don't even want to talk to my roommate. I just want to finish the semester out and then be done. And this relationship be over. But you have said that you've called me to engage and to love and to move towards reconciliation and to forgive. And I do not want to do that, but out of love for you and and because I trust that you are committed to my good. And by doing this, this is designed for me to flourish in this life. I'll do it. Because I trust the heart of the lawgiver. That's the logic of the ordinary Christian life. The gospel reveals to you the beauty of the heart of God. You're melted by it and you see that he is actually committed to your good and that empowers you to trust him and that enables you to obey him. And here's the thing. As you obey him, what you discover is that you find him more and more believable and beautiful. You actually discover as you obey Him, your heart warming towards Him. He does become more personal to you, He becomes more real to you. You don't obey God's law to just get stuff from Him. The reason why you obey God's law is just to get Him, just to get more of Him. You don't obey the law just to get stuff from Him, you obey His law just to get more of Him. Would that be true of you tonight? Would that be true of me tonight? Let me pray. Father, we know that this is not easy. This is hard. Everything in us wants to resist. We just want to do what we want to do. We want control. And Father, we repent and we confess that there is something in us that is at war with you. And the more that we give into those instincts, the more we harden our heart towards you and the more we find ourselves distant from you. Father, would you be kind to save us from ourselves, save us from our own rebellious instincts, conquer us, King Jesus, that we might find submission to you delightful and that we would find it to actually be what we were designed for. We pray all this in Jesus' name.